Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show. At Keystone Elder Law, we serve people all over South Central Pennsylvania. Our mission is to shield the middle class from the costs and challenges of getting older. And we try to do that by anticipating specific and predictable threats. And frankly, you know, we see families who have not done adequate planning and and we see the avoidable mistakes. And so working back in time for people who are still healthy, we're going to address those threats that we just know are going to come up. And we'll address them with estate planning tools such as the power of attorney, the will, certain kinds of trusts or Medicaid law if if long-term care costs come up. But today, I'm, I'm going to go into a little more about that because I just told you I've seen a number of these situations where there are avoidable mistakes, and so we want to work backwards from that and make sure people have a shield to protect them. So I'm going to give you a glimpse into some real situations that we've encountered fairly recently. And for every one of these cases, I'm convinced that there are several people walking around out there with exactly the same problem They just haven't found a solution yet, or they don't know that there is a problem sometimes. So that's the whole point of this show. This is the whole point of the the, uh, weekly webinars, the workshops I do online. Uh, If you go to keystoneelderlaw.com using the workshops tab, you can get registered for one of the next ones coming up where I'm just trying to get people to start thinking about these things. What what I see all the time is n- certainly not obvious to everybody else out there, but it does happen so commonly and there are ways to to protect yourself. So check out keystoneelderlaw.com, especially the workshops tab uh, to get registered for a workshop. But here's here's case number 1, and this is fairly recent and also fairly typical of cases that I see. I mean, this a lot of the issues that that pop up in my mind while reviewing a case like this, um, you know, it, 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 could, it could be any one of my clients. But let's talk about a married couple. I'll call them Jack and Jill. And Jack and Jill each had children from, a, from previous relationships. So one of those children has special needs. In other words, ultimately leaving money directly to that child will eliminate benefits such as Medicaid or SSI or housing benefits. And at the very least, leaving money directly to that special needs child would not be, you know, the money would not be managed very well. So it would just, it just would not be a good idea. But on top of all of that, Jill has dementia. After a trip to the hospital, Jill goes to a skilled nursing facility. Medicare because both Jack and Jill are over 65, they signed up for Medicare. That, that Medicare paid for the trip to the hospital. Medicare, because Jill was in the hospital for more than three days, pays for a very short period of time at the nursing home where Jill goes next. But as soon as that short period of time is over, Jack starts getting bills for 12000 or $13,000 a month from the nursing home. So Jack and Jill have each, uh, when I start talking to them and I want to know more about, I'm talking to Jack about Jill's health, about these bills. I want to know more about the the finances and the family. I want to know what is point A uh, so we can get to point B where life is is rosier for for Jack uh, and for Jill. And so I come to find out Jack and Jill each separately own 
bank accounts. So they just, from their previous relationships, they always just kept their own names on all their their bank accounts, their investment accounts. Uh, so this was a deliberate decision because they have those children from the previous relationships. So this is sort of their estate plan. They want their money that they had before the the marriage of Jack and Jill to go to their children from the previous relationships. Okay, so we'll figure out how's that going to play out. Normally, I would wonder why Jill's name is not on the deed to the house. Jack actually added his son's name to the deed so the son would get the house when Jack dies. Again, this is all their own kind of estate planning. They're just figuring out how is my stuff going to go to my kids? How is your stuff going to go to your kids? Okay, so far so good. Uh, I understand why they did it. Uh, maybe not what I would have advised, but I'm, I'm starting to get more of the situation. As I start reviewing the, uh, the, the nursing home bills, Jack makes a statement that I hear from time to time from clients at Keystone Elder Law. He says, Jill's going to run out of her money, but my money is separate. Well, sorry to tell you, Jack, that's not how it works. There are, you know, first of all, let's let's face something that's fair, fairly obvious to to people who study this kind of thing. The, the need for nursing home care and the prevalence of conditions like dementia, it, it's just off off the charts. It's one out of every three people are going to have dementia. One out of three. And and how many of those people out there, if you if you took one out of every three people you saw today, have some sort of plan for when that happens? I would say probably very few, but hopefully they, more people listen to this show, more people sign up for the workshops at KeystoneElderLaw.com. I, darn it, I'm going to get the word out, but, but having a plan for something that is that likely uh, becomes a necessity. And close to 70% of people get into this situation that Jack and Jill find themselves in where a higher level of care is necessary and it's extremely expensive. So people need to know how common and how serious a threat this is. Imagine if you look around your neighborhood, if half of your neighbors started getting bills in the mail for $13,000 a month, that's $154,000 a year. If you could be next, and in fact, if all the available statistics said it's, it's pretty likely you're going to be one of the next ones to start getting these bills, $13,000 every single month, would that cause you some concern? That would cause me concern. I don't I don't need creditors coming after me for that kind of money. But but what kind of a plan do you have to be ready for creditors coming after you for that kind of of money? So, I'm explaining to to Jack that you know, the situation he finds himself in is that he had a strategy. The strategy went from okay, hospital bills, Medicare pays that. Short period of time in the nursing home paid for by Medicare. Okay, so far the strategy of relying on on Medicare is working out pretty well because Medicare is picking up all, all of the tab. But then, probably very quickly, Medicare stopped paying for the nursing home, and now Jack finds himself in a private pay strategy for long-term care. So those bills are going to keep coming, and Jack will have to pay them. And when he sees that that when he sees Jill's money as separate money, you know, it has her accounts have her name and not Jack's name. Okay, when that's all consumed by the nursing home bills, those bills will keep coming and the nursing home expects them to be paid. So if Jill has no money left in her separate accounts, Jack will have to start using his accounts to pay those bills. That's a private pay strategy. 
And sometimes that's the way to go, you know, if 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 the spouse in the nursing home frankly just does not have much time left, their their health is deteriorating, then, you know, maybe privately pay for a period of time, but on on a long uh a long timeline, that's not going to work because someone in Jack's position is going to go into poverty. There are lots of other people like Jill who, you know, people with dementia uh, who might otherwise be in fine physical health. They have good blood pressure. They have good cholesterol numbers. No serious problems with any major organs. They're they're in tip-top shape for their age except for the dementia. Those people, including likely Jill, will need years of skilled nursing care at a statewide average of $13,000 a month. So in other words, this private pay strategy uh, if someone's going to be in the nursing home for a long period of time, is going to drive Jack into poverty. So he needs another strategy, and quickly. So I explained another way to go, another nursing home payment strategy, which is Medicaid. Now, under Medicaid, Jack's money is also not separate from Jill, even if that was their estate planning strategy. So you can have a great plan for who gets my stuff when I'm gone, But if you don't have a good incapacity plan or a long-term care payment plan, then your estate plan might go out the window because there's not going to be any money left. Neither Jack's nor Jill's money will be around if they stick to their current strategy. So Medicaid will stop those bills from coming from the nursing home. That's the good news. Jack will not go into poverty. There will be money left for Jack to live on and for the kids to inherit. I mean, Jack could live another 25 years. He's going to need money to live on. But there are some harsh rules, and I'm going to go into those harsh rules. Uh, you know, this is a lot of what I talk about in the, the workshops that I do, the the workshops tab at KeystoneElderLaw.com. You can use that to, to sign up for one of them and take in information from the comfort of your own home uh, on your laptop or your iPad or your phone. Uh, but knowing how Medicaid, knowing, first of all, the levels of care and how you're going to pay for them, this is all how you work backwards from it so you don't suddenly find yourself in Jack's position finding out that there's no such thing as separate money, uh, that the money is all going to be consumed. Jack's going to have to sell his house and pay the nursing home. You know, There's a way to avoid this, but you really have to understand the levels of care and how you pay for it. So Medicaid is in Jack's immediate future, and I'm going to explain more about that after a break. So we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm your host, Patrick Cawley. And before the break, I was talking about a recent uh, case uh, the married couple named Jack and Jill. And the, what they're going through, Jill's health problems, she developed dementia, she went to the hospital, then she goes to a nursing home. Very, very common. And there I am sitting in my office at Keystone Elder Law speaking with Jack about the situation. Jack is under the mistaken impression that the, the way they kept their money separate was somehow going to hold up despite this change of, uh, of events, this turn in the road for them with Jill going into a nursing home. 
and it, it's it's not going to hold up. So there is no such thing as as keeping the money separate. If if Jill runs out of her separate money, then Jack has to dig into his own pockets to pay the nursing home. It's like anything else. They 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 want to get paid for the the good care that they're providing, and and they should. Um, and it doesn't just stop because Jill runs out of money. And I'm not sure what Jack had in mind as what what does happen when Jill runs out of her separate money. And maybe he had a vague understanding of Medicaid, but what he didn't know is how Medicaid works. And there's no separate money under Medicaid either for, for married couples. So if you're in a, a second marriage or or not a second marriage, but you just always kept your money separate, that's not how Medicaid sees it. So if that was your estate plan, that's not going to work as a long-term care payment strategy at all. So under Medicaid, let's let's this is what I explained to Jack. Let's let's understand how this is going to play out for them if Jill's separate accounts are quickly uh, uh diminishing because she's paying so much money to the nursing home every month. I explained to Jack there's three pillars of Medicaid planning, three key pieces to getting eligible for Medicaid, and so those nursing home bills will stop. Number one is income. Number two is assets or savings, basically all the money you have saved, the real estate you own. Number three is gifting, so income, your savings, and gifting. And I went through these with Jack and I said to Jack, look, Jack, your your social security income, your pension income from your job, you get to keep all of that. In fact, you you can have whatever income you have up to a point. Um, and, and so that's going to be very important when I go into number two and number three. But number one income, Jack, you keep you all of your income, but you're going to lose Jill's income. That's her patient pay responsibility. So Jill's income goes straight to the nursing home. So whatever Social Security, whatever pension she might have, uh, whatever her monthly income is, that goes straight to the facility. The healthy spouse at home keeps theirs. So then we move on to number two, assets or savings. So I was looking through what they have. Jack has some retirement accounts. Uh, He has at least an IRA and a 401k. Those are protected right off the bat. That's how it works for married couples. The rules, by the way, treat uh, people who have lost their spouse or or are divorced or were never married uh, a lot more harshly than they treat married couples because right there, that's a ton of money that's sitting in in a retirement account, a tax-qualified retirement account that is completely protected right off the bat for Medicaid. So Jack sort of had some, some sense of relief when he heard that. Okay, so moving on from that, um, if we're going to look at everything else, though, Jack's investment accounts that could be turned into cash, Jill's investment accounts that could be turned into cash, their separate bank accounts, all of that goes into, let's just say, a treasure chest of countable assets. And if I added up everything else, uh, that all of the other financial accounts that Jack and Jill have, and it adds up to $200,000, here's what we do with that 200000 understanding Right off the bat, uh, that Jack's retirement accounts are protected. His income, back in the first category, number one income, his income is protected. He keeps his income. I Also, I should note that a primary residence is and one car, primary residence and one car, also protected right off the bat. So we're looking at basically all of the accounts, either Jack's or Jill's, and we're going to put them all into a treasure chest, and let's say just for sake of simplicity, that uh, it adds up to $200,000. What we're going to do 
is we're going to split it in half. 100,000 for Jack, 100,000 for Jill, even if that's not really what was in the accounts if you looked at the accounts with their names on them. So Jack keeps half the money. He keeps that 100,000 in addition to his retirement accounts, in addition to his house, in addition to one car, that's and his income. So the 100,000 if we split everything in the treasure chest in half, he keeps that right away. The other half, the other $100,000 if you've ever heard of the term the Medicaid spend down, and you can Google it, that's what has that's this this happens with the one hundred thousand on Jill's side of the treasure chest. So that has to turn into a couple thousand dollars. We have to take whatever that is that Jill has and reduce it to almost nothing. That's the Medicaid rules for you. Now, if it were if if I put everything into the the treasure chest other than Jack's retirement accounts, other than the house, one car, his income. And it were in in the treasure chest has a eight hundred thousand dollars in it or a million dollars in savings. Jack, we couldn't just cut it right down the middle. There's a cap. It's about one hundred and fifty thousand. So Jack would have one hundred and fifty thousand plus the house plus retirement accounts, one car, and his income. Everything else in the treasure chest is subject then to the Medicaid spend down, as they call it. And that's a misleading name, by the way, spend down. It, it kind of suggests to you that, that, that once Medicaid eligibility comes around, you're, you're broke. You have no money. But the law does allow for accelerating going broke and doing it in a way that, I mean, you're not just paying the nursing home month after month after month until all your money's gone, never to be seen again. Because if we do that and, and Jack has another 25 years to live, what's he going to live on? And that's why Congress and, and federal agencies and state agencies thought about this. And they said, well, we're going to allow for some some legal tools where if you go through the process the right way, we can make Jill broke in a hurry and keep all the money in Jack's name so that he has money to live on. Because if not, he's just going to become the government's problem in a completely different way when, when he's broke. So there is legal strategy here. This is a legal problem that they have. He thought it was just a healthcare problem, maybe, but when he and I got got talking, he understood this is a financial problem. This is a legal problem, and this is where elder law comes in. So, if Jill's only allowed to have a couple thousand dollars, and and everything in the treasure chest is is let's say eight hundred thousand dollars, well, uh, Jack keeps about one hundred and fifty. She's allowed to have two. Everything else has to be reduced. So to 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 basically nothing. And how do we do that? Knowing that for a married couple, I can save 100% of what you have. Well, one way you could reduce everything, as I said, is just write checks to the nursing home, but that's not going to do Jack any favors. He's, he's going to run out of money. So let's avoid that as a, as a spend down strategy. So doing a spend down this way makes more sense. And I explained this to Jack. I said, first, do you have any credit card bills? Do you have any other debts? Anything that we can just pay off? I mean, you 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 probably it's been weighing on you. You probably want to pay your debts anyway. Let's pay them off. You're allowed to, to and that comes out of the spend down of the amount that Medicaid is attributing to Jill. I mean, she's got to reduce her money to two thousand or less. We'll just say two thousand to keep it a rough even number. Well, pay the bills with Jill's money. Medicaid allows that. We all need some sort of cremation plan, burial plan, funeral plan, whatever your your wishes are for when you pass away. We all need that. In a previous episode of this show, 
uh, focused only on that subject. My guest then was Jill Lazar from Hoffman Funeral Home and Crematory in Carlisle. She went into all kinds of details about what would go into pre-planning your funeral And that's a crucial part of this Medicaid planning because we can set aside a lot of money so your family doesn't have to worry about it when you pass away. So there's emotional benefits and there's this financial benefit because we're setting money aside that Medicaid is not going to hold against you when they say you're only allowed to have a couple thousand dollars to your name. You've you've basically bought something that we all need anyway. Next thing I'm going to do is I ask ask Jack uh, any improvements that need to be made to the house so if Jack needs to grow old safely in his house, but the house needs some some work, maybe it needs a shower on the first floor so he doesn't have to deal with stairs as he gets older. Maybe it needs wider doors in case he's in a wheelchair. Maybe it needs new appliances or a new roof even. All of this is allowed by Medicaid. You're allowed to invest in those improvements to allow for aging in place and, and um, you know, the house is an exempt asset, so you can make improvements. That helps get a little bit closer to, to zero and Medicaid eligibility. Ultimately, if there's more money in savings than, than we can do away with by investing in the family, we'll get to the final tool in the Medicaid planning toolbox. And I'll, it's called a Medicaid-compliant annuity, and I'll talk about that after a break. Uh, but this is really ultimately why I can save 100% of Jack and Jill's money and get Jill the care she needs, absolutely needs, and get it paid for by Medicaid, which we, we've all paid into. We've paid into the system. So she's going to get the care paid for by a system she paid into. The nursing home and the excellent caregivers will keep getting paid. Uh, but but Jack won't have to worry about these these huge bills anymore, and he won't have to worry about running out of money So more on this when I come back. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Cauley. I'm your host. I'm the owner of Keystone Elder Law, and I've been going through in today's episode this uh, just some cases I've been seeing re- recently, including the story of p- two people, a married couple I'm calling Jack and Jill. Jill's uh, journey where she developed dementia, had some trips to the hospital, and ultimately found herself in skilled nursing care, which is, is good that she's getting the care she needs, but it's also a point of some uh, stress for, for her husband, Jack, because it's extremely expensive. So we, we figured out, we looked at the finances, we looked at you know uh, Jack's uh, misunderstanding that his money is separate from Jill's. That's not the case. If the bill needs to be paid, it needs to be paid. So we've gone through Medicaid planning, and I talked about income, and I talked about your savings, and the, all the money that's in the treasure chest when we take Jack's accounts and Jill's accounts, and we're looking at all that money, and how much of it is protected for Jack and then what do we do with the part that, that is attributed to Jill? We have to reduce that maybe by making investments in, in the home or investments in the family, prepaid funeral planning. And ultimately, though, when you're going through this process, uh, and it does take some work, it takes you know gathering all kinds of records, five years of bank statements from every financial institution where you've had money, five years of tax returns, all kinds of documents for Medicaid. It's it's a much harsher uh, process then for example if you if you have heart disease or cancer and all of your treatment is acute care 
then you just give them your Medicare card and the bill is paid. And they don't ask any of these questions. They don't need to know anything about your finances. But with Medicaid, it's a whole different uh, ball game. And so we're, we're going through all this money, this spend down. And what if we can't quite cover the distance down to about $2,000 for Jill and about $150,000 for Jack? So then she reaches the point of eligibility. There's still too much money in the treasure chest when we liquidate all of these accounts or consolidate them into one one treasure chest account. Uh, if we're if we're looking at all that money, it's too much. So we've with the final tool in the toolbox is a Medicaid compliant annuity. And this is not an annuity that any financial planner would ever talk to you about as as a retirement tool, meaning a deferred annuity. It's you put the money in and then it starts paying you much later when you're retired, when your tax bracket comes down. That that's not what I'm talking about. This is a spend down tool. So we're getting all the money out of the second category. We talked about income in the first category, savings in the second category. We're buying this annuity, bam. You're down to 150000 for Jack and $2,000 for Jill. So we we just took all the money out of the second uh, category that you're not allowed to have, and we put it in this annuity. Now, what happens with the money in the annuity? Well, remember what I said the first pillar of Medicaid planning is income, and Jack is allowed to have income. He's he, you know He has his Social Security. He has his pension. Well, and, and only Jill loses her income to the nursing home. So the annuity empties out the savings in the second category, anything that's excess that Medicaid says you're not allowed to have, and it turns it into an income stream for Jack. So it takes it from category number two and puts it into category number one, where all of a sudden Jack's uh, monthly uh, uh, income is not just his Social Security and his uh, pension income, but all of a sudden this annuity is paying him once a month too, and his, so his income goes way, way up until all of that excess assets, excess savings from the second category have been com- uh, have come over to him in an income stream, and he can put that into an account with just his name on it. So that's a good result because, you know, Jack gets that big monthly check. We've emptied out the second category, so Jill is now eligible for Medicare or Medicaid, excuse me, to pay for the care that she absolutely needs. Jack's not going to go into poverty. The theme running through all of this, of course, is that middle-class people should not go into poverty because a spouse gets sick. You know, it was through no fault of theirs that Jill got dementia. One out of every three people get dementia. And and the level of care that goes with it, uh, especially as the disease progresses, it's it's intense and it's expensive. And it's absolutely necessary. So going through this kind of Medicaid planning... Uh, allows the the person who needs care to get that care, and it allows the spouse at home to not run out of money and and live in poverty. So, I I, I was going through all this with Jack, and and Jack says, okay, you, you told me about the first two pillars of Medicaid planning: income, savings. We went through. What do you do with all the savings? You reduce it to certain numbers, and that might mean using an annuity to empty out all that savings. So then he asks. What's the third pillar? You said there were three. What's the third pillar of Medicaid planning? That's gifting. It's the last barrier to having Medicaid pay a ton of money for Jill's care. And gifting takes many forms. A Medicaid application 
is it's a lot of paper as i said it's it takes a lot of work you have to gather a lot of records a lot of uh, statements from every financial institution you've used all the tax returns for the last five years and a slew of other documents the medicaid caseworkers at the pennsylvania department of human services will be looking through all of that paper and what are they looking for they're looking for obvious gifting in the form of you know you write checks to your children and and children and parents do this it's in their dna to help their children so they they're looking line by line at the at the department of human services to see where money left your accounts in the last 5 years to see was there ever a month where you were giving money away uh, you know that's the most obvious form i mean if you were writing a check in a less obvious way that benefits your children, maybe you're paying their their rent or their mortgage for them. Um, Department of Human Services is going to see that check. There's no hiding it because they have your tax returns. They know what your income is. They have your bank statements. They see the money going out. So there's no hiding, and they're going to be able to see. Wait, what was this check in April four years ago? And you know, you might not remember. Who knows what that was? Well. We're going to look at it, and if it turns out you were paying a mortgage for a property where you don't live, or you were paying the property taxes for a, a county where you don't live, uh, a municipality where you don't live, then it's going to be pretty clear when we see where do the children live. Ah, that's exactly where they live, so you've been paying things for them. That's less obvious, but still gifting. You're, you're giving away something of value. You're not getting anything in return other than... Uh, the satisfaction of helping your children, but but the law sees that as gifting. And fortunately, neither Jack nor Jill did any of that kind of gifting. But there was one thing, and I've already mentioned it. Jack added his son to the deed of his house two years before needing to apply for Medicaid for Jill. That's gifting. And, and why, did he, why did he do it? Well, I said earlier in the show, they, they kind of came up with their own estate plan that they had these kids from previous relationships. They wanted, you know, Jack wanted his money to go to his kids, but and they wanted Jill's money to go to Jill's kids. So they set things up that way. And so adding, uh, adding Jack's son to the deed of the house, that was just a plan so that when Jack passes away, the son automatically becomes the owner of that house. That's who he wanted to get it. Okay, that's one way to do it. But it's gifting for Medicaid, and it was done within the five-year period before applying for Medicaid, so that's a problem. If the house is worth, say, $300,000, giving half of it to the son by putting his name on the deed, which is exactly what that is, it's it's gifting half of the value, that's a $150,000 gift. So if Jack simply submitted a Medicaid application as is under those circumstances, the Medicaid folks would impose about a one-year penalty. What does that mean? It means Jack will have to go on paying those hefty bills every month from the nursing home for a year before Medicaid kicks in. You know, at at I don't know, 10, 12, 13,000 a month depending on the nursing home, that's a ton of money just because you had an estate plan that that included basically adding somebody to the deed of a house. Well, so we can undo that. I mean, you can't always undo gifts, but but gifts can be undone by simply returning the gift. I often see that parents give money to their kids and the kids need it. They spend it. And then when we run into this Medicaid problem that they didn't know they were creating with the gift, well, they can't. the kids can't give it back. So we have a penalty and you just have to come up with a way to pay through the penalty period, pay the nursing home. 
In the case of the house, <clears throat> excuse me, the house, Jack and his son simply needed to record a new deed transferring the house back into Jack's name alone. That undoes the gift. Um, you know, Jack did that for estate planning purposes, but his estate plan can be updated. He can put the house into a trust, and then it's protected also from any long-term care that Jack would, would need in the future. Or he can simply have his will updated to distribute the house to his son. And while we're updating Jack's estate plan, another goal in all of this is not only to get Jill broke while saving all the money for Jack so that he can live on it, but also let's keep Jill broke. So once she's on Medicaid, Jill should not have any money coming to her. That will eliminate her Medicaid benefits. So we'll update Jack's estate plan after we fix this house and the deed situation, and we'll avoid leaving large sums of money to Jill. So you see how this is all coming together, the estate planning, the long-term care planning. There's some tax planning here as well that I'll go into after a break. So I'll be back in just a second. This is the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, and you're listening to News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I've been telling the story today of Jack and Jill, Jill's uh, journey with dementia, needing a higher level of care, and the, the hefty bills that come with long-term care in a skilled nursing facility. So we corrected some, some misunderstandings that Jack had and uh, about the money and whether his money was separate. It is not. And we're well on our way to getting Medicaid in place to pay the bill to the nurse at the nursing home so that Jack does not completely run out of money, have to sell his house and and uh, basically end up in poverty. So this is all great. We talked about the income and how that works. We talked about savings and what we do with the savings with the so-called Medicaid spend down. And finally, we, we were talking about gifting. And the one problem that Jack had was that he put his son's name on the deed to the house. Uh, and he did that for estate planning reasons. So if he passes away, the son gets the house. But but that's a gifting problem because he essentially gave half the value of the house to the son. So that could turn into a very lengthy penalty period where Medicaid won't pay the bill. Uh, you know, Jack's going to have to keep paying those big monthly bills from the nursing home for a while before Medicaid will kick in because he simply put somebody's name on the deed. So if we fix that by recording a new deed, then Medicaid will be in place. If that's the only gifting that has been done once we review all the financial records, then we fixed it. No problem. So now we're on to let's update the estate plan because that's why Jack uh, and Jill both arranged their finances the way they did and their, their real estate the way they did to begin with. So let's get that back on track. So now that we have Jill getting the care she needs, it's paid for by Medicaid. Now we update Jack's estate plan. Um, you know, so keeping in mind, not only we don't want to leave large sums of money to Jill, but also we transferred all of that money that was in previously separate accounts owned by Jill. We, we got that all over to Jack. And remember, their original plan was Jill's money goes to Jill's kids. So the updated plan needs to reflect that he is, that Jack is now going to leave money not only to his children, but also to Jill's children from her previous relationship. That was their understanding all along. No problem. We can, now that the money's in Jack's name, 
when Jack passes away, his updated estate plan will get the money to the people that they always wanted to get it anyway. And if he had never done any of this, any of the Medicaid planning, then he simply would have run out of money and none of the children would end up having anything. And and also Jack would have problems of his own with no money to live on. So that's that's a story of a real family with real challenges. And it's crucial to recognize what strategy is in place? If you look at your current situation, if any of this sounds familiar, if you know anybody going through this, if they're in in the, the you know the situation that Jack was in when he first came into my office at Keystone Elder Law, then how do we get him safely to point B where the money's preserved, the care is being provided and paid for, and there's an updated strategy for the estate plan? Uh, ultimately, when when both Jack and Jill have passed away, and it's important to to recognize how planning well ahead of time makes this Medicaid process go more smoothly. So, if Jill had separate accounts with only her name on them, and she develops dementia, how is it possible to gain access to those accounts, and and much less turn those accounts into nothing or you know close to nothing, so that she's eligible for Medicaid? It's not. You know, if we have to if we have to basically go into all of the accounts with only her name on it um, and, and then empty it out to keep the money in the family, uh, really, that's where the power of attorney comes in. And fortunately, they had a power of attorney and, and probably any old power of attorney that you find online or one that's drafted by an attorney who just dabbles in estate planning would would allow you to pay bills on behalf of an incapacitated person. But a really good power of attorney will recognize that this exact situation is in the future for 70% of the population and certainly the one in three who will have dementia and they're not able to deal with banks or insurance companies anymore. They're not able to sign a, a, a real estate document, a deed, whatever. They can't because they've lost capacity. So a really good power of attorney will allow not only access to those accounts that Jill has in her own name, but emptying out the accounts is authorized specifically because that's ultimately in the whole family's best interest. That's how you get the care paid for. You get you get eligible for Medicaid that way. So this is where the power of attorney needs to specifically authorize unlimited transfers of money for certain purposes like Medicaid planning. And nine times out of 10, when people come into my office and they show me the estate planning they had done years and years ago, usually they, they condition it with, well, this was when the kids were little and the kids are, you know, in their 30s or 40s now. So I'm looking at this very old estate plan. There's none of this. There's none of this unlimited transfers of money uh, usually in, it's called unlimited gifting or, or gifting power. Either it's not mentioned at all or it says limited gifting, and I'm not sure what the value of that is, but you certainly can't engage in asset protection if that's what your power of attorney says. But what other pre-planning, other than the power of attorney, what other pre-planning would have worked here? Well, an asset protection trust would have been a better way to go for Jack uh, other than deeding over half the property to his son because... With Jack's arrangement, the son will assume total ownership of the house upon Jack's death. That That's good. I get, that's why they did it. But when the son sells the property, let's assume this health situation with Jill never happened. It was We're just talking about putting the son, uh, the son on as a half owner of the property. Son goes to sell the property one day. He will owe some hefty capital gains tax on the sale of that house. It wasn't the son's primary residence, so capital gains tax applies, and it will be taken out of the profit from the sale of the house. 
So if if Jack's original intention was for the son to get the whole value of that property, that's not going to happen. And how how do you determine uh, what the the profit is for the son so that you can figure out how much capital gains tax will come out of that? Well, you start with how much Jack paid for the property. That's the floor. And the ceiling is whatever the son sells it for. So the difference between the floor and the ceiling is the profit in the eyes of the IRS. If you want to protect the property from long-term care expenses, get it to a child or children in your family and avoid this problem of the government taking a huge chunk out of the profits from the sale of the house when you're gone, you put it into an asset protection trust. That's the way to go. And Jack only had this primary residence, but what if he owned other real estate too? What if he had a vacation property, a hunting cabin, farmland, or maybe land that had been in the family for 100 years? Well, he would have had to sell that property before Jill would qualify for Medicaid. Why? Because the Medicaid rules that you know, they'll overlook the primary residence, but they're not going to get you qualified and, and pay thousands of dollars every single month if you have a vacation property or a rental property or farmland. They're going to say that can all be turned into cash and you can pay for your own care. So sell it. You want to avoid that result in your family? An asset protection trust is the way to go. That's how you protect anything. I mean, you can put your primary residence in there, too. It's probably a good idea, but you absolutely really need to. If Medicaid will ever pay a dime for your long-term care, you need to put all of those secondary properties into an asset protection trust, and you want to do it, ideally, five years at least before you ever need to apply for Medicaid because that's that gifting window. That's how far they look back and you are absolutely transferring something out of your name in order to protect it. And what about what what about that child that, that Jack and Jill have, the, the, uh, the child in the family with special needs? There's no reason why Jack could not leave money in his estate, uh, in his plan, to improve the quality of life for that child. It's, you know, it's, it's obvious that leaving money to someone uh, who, who's, whether they have physical health, mental health problems, whether they have addiction, whether they have just pure money management problems, maturity problems, whatever it might be, it's obvious that it's a bad idea to just leave money to them directly. But money left in a special needs trust for the child will be managed by somebody else for the benefit of that child. And the special needs trusts can be built inside your will or it can be set up separately in an asset protection trust and the latter is the way you go if you want to protect it from your own long-term care costs, your own future problems. So if you want the money to be there, protected and managed in a way that that uh, it should be for someone who can't quite do it themselves, you first need to put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. You need to protect it from your own future, your own Long-term care costs, the number one most most predictable threat that people run into. So if all of this sounds like something that uh, that you ought to be thinking more about, maybe you have more questions about the nuts and bolts of this. This story of Jack and Jill is the story of so many families in central Pennsylvania. It, this is happening all the time. And with the public health stats saying how likely long-term care is in your future, You probably want to know more about this. There's a couple ways you can find out. You can go to keystoneelderlaw.com and click on the workshops tab. Get signed up for one of the next workshops we have. I'm doing them pretty much every week. They tend to be on Wednesday evenings. You can watch it from home 
online. Just so go to keystoneelderlaw.com, click on workshops and get signed up. You can also give us a call at 717-697-3223 and we can get together in our office. I hope you take more more action on this. I hope this is clarifying for you. I hope you listen next week for more insights on later in life planning. This has been the Later in Life Planning show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580.